Hello from Shanghai, Nathan Thomas here from IntrepidTimes.com. Recently, I had the enormous privilege of interviewing one of my favorite authors, Peter Hessler. He's the New York Times best-selling author of Rivertown, Two Years on the Yangtze, his memoirs of his time as a Peace Corps volunteer in Fulin and Sichuan. He's also the author of Oracle Bones, Country Driving, and Strange Stones. We begin on a personal note with a brief anecdote about how Peter's writing has influenced my life directly, and then we explore his travels in Cairo and Egypt, as well as his time in China and writing in general. Enjoy. First of all, on a personal note, I、uh, have you to thank for a lot of reasons. One of which is that I met my current girlfriend Lucy in Chengdu two years ago. We were both studying Chinese there, and I wound up in Chengdu more or less randomly. But she wound up there because she'd read Oracle Bones and had been inspired to go to Sichuan for that reason. And it was her who put me onto your books. So I guess I have、oh, you to thank、cool. for that. That's cool. That's cool. Did you have a good time in Sichuan? Really loved it. I spent about six months in Chengdu. She was there for a year. It was、okay. still a strange place, even gosh, close to fifteen years after you'd been there. Yeah, and it's a great place to start. I mean, I think, I think it's really smart for young people who are you know starting with the language and with China to find some place in the interior, you know, because you're going to end up everything sort of drifts toward either Shanghai or Beijing, you know, in the, in the long run. And so it makes sense to start somewhere in the interior so you get that experience. And Sichuan's great. I mean, it's it's it sort of has everything that you get in China is there, and the food's fantastic as well. Yeah, yeah, and the, the people just they have a very. I mean, I always felt like the 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 two places in China where the people kind of have the most likable character were were Sichuan and then Dongbei. You know, in the, in the northeast, there, there's something sort of very. Uh, you know they they have good sense of humor and they're very lively and 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 just enjoyable. Both those places stand out for me. Did you find yourself? I know I certainly did picking up Sichuanese rather than Putonghua when you were down there. Yeah, and it was more probably more of a problem when I was there. I mean, when I was starting in the mid '90s, you know, people Mandarin was not nearly as widespread as it is now. I, I mean, the 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 two elements of television and migration. Have really, you know, improved the, the the level of Mandarin throughout China, and so at that point there were still very many people. I mean, actually, most of my colleagues in the English department in in Fuling at the Teachers College had very bad Mandarin. Actually, I mean, these were educated people who'd been to college; they were English teachers, and 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 many of them were notorious for not being able to speak Mandarin. So it was it was a very different age then, and so you ended up, you know, fortunately, I did find two tutors. The the tutors that I describe in Rivertown, they had excellent Mandarin. That was the main reason that they hooked. Us up with them because because they spoke such good manners. So in class, I would do that and I would listen to tapes of them. But on the street, you really you had to be able to adjust and speak some Sichuanese. You know, if you if you didn't do that, people just wouldn't understand what you're saying. Like, I mean, for even the simplest thing, like we the college was called a Sichuan. You know, that's how you would say it in Mandarin, Sichuan. If you were telling, but if you told a cab driver Sichuan, they Uh, they just wouldn't get it. You had to say Sizwar, you know, Sizwar, you know, and and then they would get it. So you had to learn to slur the things and to do the tones a little differently.、Um, but you know, as you know, it's not a huge difference, and you can make that adjustment basically. You know, had the exact same experiences in Chengdu, having to deliberately sound like you've drunk half a liter of Baijiu when talking to a taxi driver for them to understand you at all. Yeah, fortunately, it's kind of a pleasant dialect to speak, and it's you know the slurs are sort of. Are, I, I kind of mumble in English anyway, so maybe it was maybe it was appropriate for me. But they, but yeah, as you know, things like I don't know if you said "dou shao qian." I mean, that you just had to learn to say "hao dou qian." You know, that, that was what the people there said, and 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 there are a lot of little things like that. But it, it wasn't too hard. Yeah. 
How's um your Arabic coming along? It's it's solid. It's not. It hasn't come along the way my Chinese did, and I think for a number of reasons. I I think it's mostly been just the nature of commitments here. I've you know when we first decided we were going to move to this region was in 2007 when we were leaving China and and you know everybody always told us that oh the Middle East is ever in Egypt is very quiet nothing changes it's all the same and and so we had this expectation that it would be sort of a mellow, more mellow than China and of course that's not at all the case it ended up by the time we came here in 2011 things were really moving and and unsettled and unstable and so it's been a really intense experience and I've I really I mean I did my first story here within you know six weeks of arriving and just because big events were happening and so that I wasn't able to study full-time in the way that I originally wanted to but you know that was I had to respond to the situation I'm really glad I followed all those events from the beginning um, but we've done fine Les and I have done you know we we did we started with the Middlebury program in the US and did a couple months there and then we came here and hired tutors um, and and you know we've really enjoyed it. I'm very con- con- conversational. I can do basic interviews, but for for more sophisticated stuff, I still need a translator. You mentioned that in one of your interviews that you chose Egypt partly because you knew it would be interesting, and there were political things going on. Was it even more intense than you anticipated? Yeah, I mean, actually, you know, when we left China, the plan was to go either to Syria or to Egypt, or to either Damascus or to Cairo, and and the reasons were really linguistic because those were two two of the better places to study because the Arabic dialects. I mean, they're sort of in the middle of where the dialects are, um, you know. But by the time we we were moving in 2011, by the time we were getting close to moving out here it became very apparent that Syria wasn't possible. At that point, actually, Syria was not as nearly as violent as it was to become, but it was getting, there was a clampdown going on, and so as Americans, you couldn't, American writers in particular, you couldn't just move there and study Arabic. So really, by the time we made the move, Egypt was kind of the only option, you know, except for something like Jordan, which is really not in the mix. Yeah. You mentioned also that you wouldn't like to go somewhere like, to use a random example, Portugal, because even though it's a beautiful country, it's not in the midst of some big change. Do you think that's a consistent thing with Cairo, with China? Yeah, there there are certain consistent things. I mean, that's sort of a pragmatic consideration. I mean, you know, we're two writers. Um, we need to earn a living. And, you know, I earn a living by writing books and also by writing magazine pieces, especially for The New Yorker. And there's, you know, there's only so many New Yorker pieces you could do from Portugal or from sure. a lot of places, you know. And so, you know, maybe later in life you could make that sort of decision. But at this point, I need to be someplace where the mag. Um, you know, so that's one consideration. But the other one for me, and, and, and I think for Leslie as well, the reason that we gravitated toward the Middle East, partly because it was so far from China and it felt like this way you could really be disengaged from China, but also because they have this ancient history attracted me here. I liked that element in China. In my second book, I wrote a lot about it in Oracle Bones, and I found the imaginative potential of archaeology and of, of the ancient past to be really interesting and the way it plays off the, the contemporary society. And so I really, I like that about the Middle East and about Egypt in particular. And, and that has actually been one of my favorite parts of, of living here is has, I've spent a lot of time on archaeological sites. I only did one New Yorker piece that, that includes archaeology, but I've got some other things I'm working on. And in the book, it's going to be a significant part of my book. I've sort of become somewhat educated in the pharaonic history, and it's this entirely new world that, that I never knew about before. And, and by moving here, we've, we've opened that up. And my daughters are, are really deeply engaged in it as well. We've taken, I've traveled all over the country, and, and we've traveled with them and taken them to sites. And so it's been part of their education as well. I guess one of the things you showed in Oracle Bones is how even if something is 
really ancient and a long time ago, it doesn't have to be removed from the current political things that are happening, like your story about, a, was it Chung Mong Jer and his explorations in mm-hmm. Sanching Dui? Have you found similar connections in Egypt? Yeah, no, I mean, this is, it, it's turned out to be quite similar in the sense that I've, there have been sort of three main archaeological sites that I've spent time at, and and yeah, you see, I mean, here it's different. I'm not tracking one single story the same way it was in Oracle Bones, but I'm on these sites and watching how these sites are being managed during this revolutionary period and also just talking to the specialists. Fascinating and hearing their insights and what they see as connections between the past and the present. There are certain patterns that really seem, seem eternal. And, you know, and then the horizon here is so long. I mean, some of this stuff, you know, when I'm in Abydos, the, these things are, you know, 5,000 years old. It's amazing. You know, it's, I mean, it makes the Chinese stuff look new. One of the threads in all of your work has been the kind of everyday characters that you can encounter. And one of the people you wrote about in Egypt was uh, Syed Ahmed. And you had also mm-hmm. Polat and, and many, many other characters in China. What is it that makes a character like this interesting for you? And how do they help you come to an understanding of a place like Cairo? Yeah, Saeed was, was actually my garbage man, and I just met him because he started bringing me things that he found in the trash because I was a foreigner. These were things that he wanted to figure out if they had value, what they were used for. It started with sort of like Chinese Viagra-type pills. And, <laughs> and, and so, I mean, that was sort of a really funny incident. When that happened, I was like, oh, this guy's kind of a character. And then he kept coming back, and we got to know each other. And as my Arabic improved, I, I could start to hang out with him. And he's, he's become, I mean, he's probably my, my, my closest Egyptian friend. I mean, I've been, my parents came to Egypt um, a little more than a month ago, and, and all of us with Leslie and the girls and my parents, we went to his house for, for dinner, which was really amazing. Um, and I think we're one of the highlights for my parents, and it's the kind of thing that most people don't see in Cairo. But, you know, in, in, these, in these places, there, I think there's always a risk of your focus becoming too elite. Um, and we, especially in Egypt, I mean, Egypt is, is, is a place that has a you know, very serious problem with poverty and, and, and illiteracy and lack of education in a way actually that China does it now. And you really do need to have some insight into that world, I think, if you're going to write about this place. And, and, but by, by getting to know Said, I realized you know, he, he is these things. He's, he's illiterate. He lives in what I guess you would call a slum. He's, you know, he has no formal education, but he's very smart. He's very interesting. He has a great sense of humor. He's very engaging. Um, you know, he's interested in us. We've had you know, both Leslie and I have become very, very close to him. And so it sort of humanizes these issues. He's not a symbol of something. You know, he's, he's a real person to me. And, and, and uh, you know, he's complicated. There's things that I admire about him. There's, there's shortcomings that I can see as well. Um, and so it just helps you, you know, it helps you kind of connect with the place in a different way. Um, and especially during this very intense political time when I think Egypt can become even more abstract in a set of issues and, and struggles between political forces. You realize, you know, people like this are just uh, – because he, he's kind of done the same thing throughout this time. None of the politics really affects him very much, you know. What was it like going with him before dawn, collecting rubbish from everybody's houses? I was fascinated because uh, – you know, he's telling me stories. He just knows a lot about people because he's, you know, he picks up their trash and, and he knows a lot about me. He's always telling me how much I'm drinking or, or what, you know, what we're throwing away. I, many times I've thrown away some, you know, by accident, some, uh, I remember a few months ago, I put out the garbage and literally within like 45 minutes, I heard a knock at the door and he was there with a little, uh, you know, with a little fork that my girls use. I'd thrown it away by accident with the garbage. So he's always <laughs> fine. He finds it. I mean, that's actually one of his roles is 
is it's kind of like a lost and found. And the, and, and the guy is really amazingly honest. I mean, he finds wallets and things in the trash all the time, and he'll go, and he knows this is part of his value to the to the local community is that he returns this stuff and he'll get a reward and, and you know people will give him a reward but they also trust him to be honest i mean one time i was walking with him and a woman in front of us had just dropped like a, a hundred uh, pound note which is you know 12 or 13 bucks it's a good amount of money for Said. and first of all he spotted it. He's, he's he's always hyper aware of it. And this was at night i don't think i would have seen it he spotted it and then he grabbed it and he immediately ran over and returned it to the woman um and in that case she didn't give him a tip which she should have um but 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 this is kind of his his thing i mean he's you know he's it's it's not just garbage he's you know he's also sort of you know and he's kind of an authority in the t- in the in neighborhood it's amazing i mean he's in the fall i guess we're an advertising agency was um, they were planning a uh, they wanted to do a shoot of an apartment for for, for a TV ad, um, and so this neighborhood has some nice old apartments. And so where did they go to find out where the nice apartments might be? They went to the garbage guy, to Said, and then and then he came. He approached me. He's like, you know, these ad guys want to go look at your apartment, and and you know, can you do that? So I set up a time. The ad guys came. They decided it wasn't what they were looking for. But I mean, that, that he was the person that they were going to was the garbage man because he because he goes to people's apartments. He picks up their trash. It's a very personalized process. He sounds like the perfect companion, the perfect tour guide if you really want to get to know what's going on. Yeah, and he's I mean, he's sort of like a journalist in some ways in the sense that he's. I mean, he's not publishing anything, but he's he's he keeps track of things. He knows what's going on, you know, and he's actually always up on the news. I mean, I remember the worst bombing attack that we've had um, was in 2014, near the end of, near the anniversary of the revolution, January 25th. It was a few days before. And it was just a terrible attack a few miles away from me with this massive bomb, and I was I was up early. It was about six in the morning, and I I heard this sound and the windows rattled and really the moment it happened i knew that 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 i I suspected there had been a bomb somewhere um but within about 10 minutes he called you know and he said yeah you know what just happened there's explosion somewhere in kai you know and so he's he's he keeps me updated on stuff because he hears very quickly on the street what's going on in one of your recent interviews and also it's apparent in a lot of your writing that you enjoy i don't know if you still get the opportunity to with what's going on but finding interesting places just to hang out to be, to observe the people like uh, Yabalu in Beijing. You mentioned you had a kind of a coffee shop, shisha place in Cairo. To contrast with characters, what is about the places for you where you just go? Do you read a book when you're there? Do you just hang out, chat to the people? Are these where stories kind of form around you? Yeah, I mean, you know, China, of course, is a great restaurant culture. And so there were, and I was not cooking when I was in China living as a single guy. And so I would, I would go to little noodle restaurants and places and just hang out and you get to know the characters there. And that's how I met um, Pulat, the Uyghur that I wrote about in, in Oracle Bones was just hanging out at a restaurant. Um, and this was a neighborhood I spent a lot of time in. And it was just sort of, a, you know, Yabalu then was kind of a funky, somewhat dodgy area with a lot of different nationalities floating through, especially Russians. Um, and so it was, you know, places like that are cool and, and, and fun to hang out with. And if you position yourself in an interesting place and you just spend time is in an open, you know, with, with, your, with your mind as open as possible without an agenda, then, you, you know, you kind of encounter things. And, you know, it, it gets harder when you're older and when you have kids. And so that, that is, you know, I do find it a lot harder here. I mean, for example, you mentioned the Ahwa, which is the, the coffee shop where I, where I hung out and I did a lot of studying of Arabic there. I haven't really been there much in the last year. It's just my, my schedule got so demanding as I was researching and as I was dealing with my, with my two daughters and, 
and just the pressures of life. So you kind of you have to be a little more efficient at this stage. Um, but I've had a really sort of the equivalent to me for me during this period has been Upper Egypt, has been getting out of Cairo and spending time. And Upper Egypt is actually in the south. It's upper in terms of the Nile. Um, and there have been a couple of communities there where I've spent a lot of time. And, and, and you know, with a pretty open-ended agenda, you know, just going and hanging out. And, and that's really helped me sort of reduce the Cairo focus. I mean, I feel like this is another risk of reporting in places like this is you become too Beijing-centered or too Shanghai-centered or too Cairo-centered, and especially in Egypt, because Cairo really does dominate the country in a way that, that Beijing doesn't dominate China. Um, and getting out has been wonderful because the landscape in Egypt is also just a huge part of what this place is, and you don't really feel it in Cairo, but you do feel it in Upper Egypt. You really get a sense of this amazing phenomenon of this river flowing through a landscape where there's zero rain, and yet you've had you know, you've got this water and you've got 90 million people here now and you've had civilization here for, you know, more than, more than 5,000 years. And, and, and so you, it helps you grasp that. But, but also you just do encounter funny things. I mean, that, that's how I, I did a long piece about Chinese uh, merchants in Upper Egypt in very remote places who were selling lingerie. And I, I encountered those guys just randomly when I was wandering around Upper Egypt. It wasn't something I expected to find. So, you know, if you, have, if you put yourself in a place that's interesting and you and you're able to spend some time something's going to turn up so do you find a lot of your stories come from when you put yourself in one of these places as you say without an agenda and just talk to the people who see what's going on yeah i mean that's how you know there have always been things that have developed like that everywhere i've been i mean even the you know in colorado one of the i think probably my favorite story that i did from the u.s when i was there between china and egypt was about a pharmacist in a small town in Colorado, and I was doing some research in this town, and people kept referring to this pharmacist, and it wasn't part of the story. I was doing a story on uranium mining, but I just I kept hearing about him, so I set up an interview and met with him. And after I met with him, I, I thought, you know, I don't really know what this is, but I think there's a story there. Um, and so after I finished the uranium story that I wrote, I, I approached him and I said, you know, I'm I'm interested in writing about you. Can I hang out in your pharmacy? And and he, he said, yeah, I don't know, really understand why you want to do this, but yeah, you're welcome to do that. And so that's how it started, and it turned into you know, one of my favorite stories. And, and so you know, it, takes, it takes time, and some of these things don't work out. You know? And so it, it, it's, it's harder to do, and it's really impossible to do if you're a newspaper reporter because those jobs are so incredibly demanding, and, and the need for efficiency is so high. Um, so, you know... Most journalists, you know, can't really spend time like this, and I feel like that's one of the luxuries of doing the the reporting for the New Yorker or writing books is that I actually do have, you know, I, I have some more room to work, and so I need. To, I feel always feel like I should take advantage of that, and it's not so important to be productive. I don't need to be turning out a lot of stories a year. The main thing is to try to to find things that unfold naturally and to try to find things that engage me. I noticed that we share a love of Paul Thoreau and Bruce Chatwin. One of the things that another travel writer, I think it was Colin Thubron, said was that to him, a lot of the best travel writers were writers first and travelers second. Would you say that's true of yourself? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that's, I think, I mean, the, the truth is it's, it's, it's easier to travel and easier to learn language, easier to live in a place than it is to write. Um, and, and this is often hard for people to grasp, but writing is a really technical thing. It takes a lot of time. 
Um, I think sometimes people have this idea that it's a gift, that it's something you're born with, and that you just, or that it comes from the material, that you have great material, and so you can write. And, and none of those things is true. I mean, it really, it really is something that takes a lot of work and a lot of uh, training, whether that training is formal or something you direct to yourself. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, I knew I wanted to be a writer from when I was about 16. Um, and really worked at it very hard, and, I, and basically all of my decisions in education were based on that. I was very focused on trying to get better as a writer. In college, I was lucky to have some excellent teachers, but even so, I mean, it took me until I was, you know, 29 was when I started to write Rivertown. It really took me until that point um, before I was ready to write anything of value. It takes a long time, and that was pretty early by writer standards. Usually, you don't do much of value until you're in your 30s. So. You have this sort of long period when you need to get better, and there's a yeah, it, it takes a lot of work. And I, I mean, those guys are both, you know, Paul Theroux is, I think, was originally, you know, really a fiction writer, and so he had his writing abilities before he started writing the nonfiction, the travel books. You mentioned that you wrote uh, Rivertown, and was it four months of just extremely intense writing? How was that process of organizing this amazing experience? over this two years of your life when you're still quite a, a young man into, you know, a coherent, very well-crafted book. Yeah, I mean, that, I think it's, it's an experience that you never really have again because your first book is very different. And, and I, you know, when I wrote that book, I wasn't, I really didn't think it was going to be published. I mean, I, you know, I had published very little. And so you don't, you sort of think, well, you've got to be a writer for a long time before you can write a book. And, and so it seems sort of audacious to do that and pretty audacious to write a China book, to be honest. I mean, I had never, I had never met a journalist who wrote about China when I wrote that book. I, I, I had never, I think I had met one sinologist. I had, I had uh, interviewed Orville Schell when I came out of the Peace Corps and, and when I passed through Berkeley. But, you know, I, I really had very little formal contact with field. Um, but I had been thinking about this. I'd been encouraged by my former teacher, John McPhee, with about six months to go in my Peace Corps time. He said, you know, you should think about writing a book. And so I started to plan it and, and to sort of gather my material. I went through my notes. I mean, the thing, fortunate thing is that when I was in fooling, I kept incredibly detailed notes, largely because I was trying to process everything and keep track of it and just, just for my own purposes. And also, we didn't have internet, you know, and I, I had very little contact with anybody in the U.S. or outside of fooling. So I had a lot of time to myself, and one of the things I was doing was writing about my experiences and, and, and describing what was going on and how I felt about it. So I had all this material, so I went through it all uh, with, with that about six months to go, and um, I looked at what I had, and I thought about what else I might need for a book. And so for the last six months, I was actually kind of actively reporting. I was going to parts of the town that I didn't know much about, that I wanted to learn about. I was having conversations with people to learn things that I felt like I should know. Um, so, so, you know, even though I didn't start writing it till I left, there was a huge amount of preparation that went into it before. And there had been a lot of writing. I, it, it was just in more of diary form or notes and so on. So when I went back to my parents' home in Columbia, Missouri and actually started writing, the thing we had really, I thought a lot about it. I had mapped out a structure. Um, I had huge amounts of material that had been written in, in fairly polished form. It wasn't in book form, but it was, it was, you know, pretty carefully done. And so it moved very fast. Um, and, you know, I also felt a lot of urgency. I was, you know, I was 29 years old. I had never had a real job other than the Peace Corps. I didn't have any money. Uh, I was applying to journalism jobs and getting rejected. And so I, I felt a lot of pressure too. And, and that also contributed to my working pretty quickly. I felt like I didn't have a lot of time to do this. And yeah, so at the end of four months, I 
I finished it, and to be honest, after I finished it, I I was really sort of non-functioning for a couple of weeks. It, it it was, you know, I learned since that this often happens to writers. It's kind of like a postpartum thing that you finish this big project and and you become very depressed, or you know, I wasn't I wasn't prepared for that. I thought that when I would finish this book, that I would be really happy, um, but I was just incredibly depressed. I thought the thing was worthless. I didn't want to do anything to, to, to have anything to do with it. I didn't want to send it out. And it really took me, you know, about a month to kind of work through all this. And then I sent it to, uh, you sent it out to agents. And I just did that as a blind query. You know, in New York, I didn't know anybody um, in, the, in the industry. And I was surprised when a, a couple of agents were interested. But, you know, at the same time, I was getting rejected a lot by, you know, by journalism jobs. And, and actually, most of the agents that I sent the book to didn't want to represent it. And it was really the same book. It, it was very, very in quite finished form. But it just tells you a lot of this is, is fairly subjective. And some people might respond positively to something and others won't. And the book's now being made uh, into a movie. I just read. Yeah, yeah. One of my one of my friends from college is is, is the producer and, and uh, they're, you know, they're working on a script now. And yeah, I mean, I'm not directly involved, but I'm, you know, they're, they're, they're keeping me updated and and you know asking me things about it yeah we'll, we'll see you, what happens who do you want to play peter hessler <laughs> no, i don't have any any ideas really i know that they're going to change the name of the main character um too so it won't be it won't be peter hessler <laughs> i don't know what, sure. they're gonna, what, what the name will be um but yeah we'll see i mean i you know these things take a long you know it's it's always i think it's always hard for everything to come together so so uh, you know they're they're at a but but they've you know they they've gotten through some of the early stages so we'll see what happens with it. Cool. And any clues about your upcoming Egypt book? Do you have a theme for that? Yeah, I mean it's you know I think probably the China book that it most resembles is Oracle Bones, um, in the sense that it's I'm combining contemporary stuff and 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 some some stuff from ancient Egypt. Um, I think there's a a few big differences. I mean, one is that this is really was an incredibly intense political period and 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 you know I've covered some of these big events like the you know the first democratic elections that they had and the you know the coup and the trial of the president and and so you know you sort of have I never saw things like that in China you know China was never undergoing that kind of political uh transition and conflict. So it was a very new experience for me, and I think it will give the book a very different texture. I mean, I, I'm really looking forward to doing it. I feel like I've been gathering material for so long, and it's really time to, uh, you know, it's really time to sit down and write it. A lot more, I guess, quote unquote, hard news. There's been more political events here, obviously, and, and so I'm interested to play those. You know, those are going to be combined with the more personal stories of, of people like Said and with and and the you know village life in Upper Egypt, and then also combined with the archaeology and the ancient past. Um, so it's you know it's a, it's great material. I'm I'm happy I'm happy with what I have. It's going to be you know a, a big challenge in terms of organizing it and figuring out how these pieces fit. But that's you know that I really enjoy that stage, and so I'm looking forward to to writing. I find the reporting is always harder. Um, you know, it's just it's just tough to get to go out and, uh, you know, you were in rough conditions a lot. And some of these events that I covered were very stressful and, you know, occasionally dangerous. And, and so I'm actually kind of looking forward to, to being done with that stage and, and then sitting down in Colorado and, and looking at my material and, and figuring out how it fits together. Cool. Well, I can't wait to read it. 
Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today, Peter. It's been a real privilege for me. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, no problem at all.